Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians, the epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14. We're continuing this series titled Holy Spirit Power, Holy Spirit Purpose, and we are a Pentecostal church, and I'll get into what that means as we go this morning, but we believe in the, the power of the Holy Spirit, amen? And we, we like to be led by the Spirit because the Spirit takes us to Jesus. And uh, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. Normally I preach out of the CSB translation, but I, I haven't made note of this enough in this sermon or, or even at all, I think. The reason I'm, I'm preaching out of the ESV is because it, the translation is a little clearer and a little more accurate to the Greek, and I think that's important as we study. But we're going to read today, beginning in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for the believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. When we operate in the gifts, it is to take us to Christ. It is to take unbelievers to Christ. That has been the whole point. It's, it's unifying the church and drawing us closer to Christ. But church, hear me on this this morning. Failing to operate in the Spirit correctly destroys our relationship with unbelievers. I'll say that again if you're taking notes. Failing to operate in the Spirit correctly destroys our relationship with unbelievers. Now I'll flesh that out as we go this morning. But I'm going to preach today, this is a very difficult text. This is a 1 Corinthians 14. A lot of Pentecostal preachers stay away from this text because it's very difficult. And there's, they'll pick and choose what they like and then they'll leave the rest. We're going through the entire chapter. And it's, it's a difficult uh, thing to exposit, to, to divide. But I hope and, and I believe I have done, as Paul told Timothy in her, uh, sorry, 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I pray that I have and, and will rightly handle the word of truth today. That's expository preaching, by the way. Now, you've all heard me say this, but I want to say it again today because there, there's a reason to that. There are typically two types of preaching. There's topical, which is where you take a topic and then you pick a text and you, you affirm that topic. Now, I've heard one preacher in the region, do this and do it well. It's Pastor Hutch at First Baptist. I've heard famous preachers preach topical sermons. And Hutch, when he has time and he prepares, is on par with those famous preachers. He does a very good job with that. So I'm not by any means putting down topical preaching. There's a time for it and a place for it. But that's not how I typically preach. What, the way I preach, what I believe is, is more of a, and I don't mean that topical preaching is unbiblical, but I think that a biblical example, we see Peter 
exposit Scripture in Acts chapter 2. We see the prophets exposit Scripture as they take the law and apply it to Jerusalem. What that means is you're taking the text and you're exposing its meaning to the people. And people will say that expository preaching is prophetic preaching because as we learned last week, what is a prophecy? It's really something that is spoken to keep the church on the right path, right? Last week, we talked about amens, guys. Come on. Yeah, let me hear them. Amen. That's, that's rich church tradition to say amen. That's about as charismatic as I'm going to get today. But another preacher I recently heard said there's a third type of preaching that nobody talks about it. Well, the reason nobody talks about it is because it doesn't exist. He said it's called prophetic preaching. And that's where you just let the Holy Spirit tell you what to say. Uh, that is dangerous, church. Not dangerous in the good way. Because you find some loose change on the ground and you build a whole sermon series out of that, shame on you. The, the Word of God dictates what we preach and how we preach and, and should dictate the direction in which we preach. A pastor who does that, that is actually, and I want to pull a curtain back for you this morning. You've heard me all say this before. Some of you have anyway. To do something like that is a lazy Bible college student trick. I learned it. I saw students do this, and they got away with it somehow. And I'll give you an example. This guy, we'll call him Nick, my senior year of Trinity. He shows up to our preaching class, and he says, Oh, guys, I worked so hard on my sermon last night, but as I was walking to the chapel, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and he gave me this message, and that's what I'm going to preach to you today. And he was very light on the text and very heavy on the uh, pointing his finger and crying a lot. Right? That's what we used to call that type of preaching. Very heavy on the emotion. Church, I want to tell you this today, and I'm going to be very, very clear. A pastor who does not love his congregation enough to be true to the word is manipulating his people. And he's, first of all, he's lazy, but secondly, he's one to be very cautious of because that is not right. If someone doesn't love the word of God enough to be true to that, he will not be loving to his people enough to be true to them. If I don't care what this word says, why should I care what anybody else has to say? Thank you, Dale, for the amen. That's that's a big difference between what we call Pentecostals and Charismatics. And I want to draw a line this morning on that for you. I do not call myself a Charismatic for a reason. We are Pentecostal. Now, we believe in the Charismata. We've talked about that in this series. We believe in the charismatic gifts, but for Pentecostal purpose. A charismatic, someone who wants the gifts, they want the gifts for themselves, for an experience on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday afternoon. They want to feel the presence of the Holy Spirit and do nothing with it. They want the charismatic. They're a charismatic. We're Pentecostal. Pentecost was a feast about a harvest. And we believe very much when Jesus said in Acts 1-8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We believe the second part as much as we believe the first part, and you will be my witnesses. We're Pentecostal because we want the charismatic to go out and make a harvest. Amen? We care about the unbeliever. We care about what the Word of God says, and we want to use the Word of God as, as what it is meant to do in piercing the hearts of the unbeliever and draw them to Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And if the Holy Spirit is operating within a church, the church is then going and bringing in a harvest. 
It said that when William Tyndale was facing martyrdom, when he was facing his execution in 1525, he wrote to the governor-in-chief and he requested four things. The first three was a warmer cap, a warmer coat, and a piece of cloth to patch his pants. But the fourth thing was study materials. He said, But most of all, I beg and beseech and entreat your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. You guys, studying Greek is very hard. As someone who's trying to learn the language, I can tell you it's very hard. Hebrew is much harder. No sane person on their deathbed we, would we think would want a Hebrew Bible and the study materials for it. But here's the thing. When we plunge deep into the Word of God and what the Holy Spirit truly has to say to us, it is one of the greatest blessings in a person's life to be able to say that which they cherish most is what helps us understand God's Word best. That's what Tyndale did. And if, by the way, Tyndale was being martyred because he had the gall, he had the audacity to translate the Bible into English. What a horrible man, right? I say that sarcastically. It's my prayer that this series gives us insight and understanding of God's word that we're able to live it best and operate in the spirit as, as we are meant to, not just as individuals, but as a church. I believe God has given me as your pastor and our leadership team, a vision for, for the direction of this church. And we have, we have things coming up this, this fall. I hope you're getting excited about it. I hope you're going to join me in prayer and fasting concerning these things as we, we get excited and want to bring people to these events. But church, I want to be very clear. When it comes to building the church, that vision does not entail stealing Christians from other churches. Okay, that's not, I know that happens in small towns sometimes. We don't play that game. We're not doing that. The best way and the the purest way to grow a church is to bring in unbelievers and make them disciples of Jesus Christ. To bring in people who convert and say, you know what, I need Jesus. And having Jesus transform their life. If you take someone from another church, what's to keep someone else from taking them back? Right? That's not how you build a church. Building a church comes with making disciples. It's kind of like Jesus knew what he was talking about when he gave us the Great Commission. Go make disciples, right? Don't go steal from Apollos, Paul. That's not what he said. He said, make disciples. Convert and disciplining, uh, sorry, discipling unbelievers, not disciplining. I can't read my own handwriting. And we do this as we operate in the Spirit by having Spirit-led worship, Spirit-fueled sermons from Scriptures that are Spirit-inspired as we've seen over the past few weeks, as we operate within the gifts of the Spirit. When we do not operate in the gifts of the Spirit correctly, we damage and we often destroy the relationship with unbelievers, and we see the church's growth hindered and hurt by such things. In short summary of how to avoid that, and these are the three points this morning, Paul tells us to be mature in the Spirit, to be missional in the Spirit, and then we will see miracles in the Spirit. And that's the first point. We are to be mature in the Spirit. Verse 20, it reads once again, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In this section, Paul is drawing a contrast of what 
the Corinthian church was and where it should be. It's, it's, not, uh, it's where they ought to be. The idea of spiritual maturity is actually a case that Paul has been very subtly building and building and building up to this point. He began way back in chapter 2. He discussed how he came to them. He was preaching Christ and Christ crucified. He said, I didn't, I didn't come with all the flash. I didn't come with the smoke machines and the, the laser lights, right? He said, I came and I just preached Christ. That's all I wanted to know among you guys. And then he continues on and on throughout the, the, uh, the letter talking about this stuff. And the idea for Paul is that as it should be for us is always take people to Christ. That's all you got to do. There's no fluff. There's no extra, uh, you know, electric guitars and extra. Th- I mean, not that I'm against electric guitars. I like them, but it does, that's not that's not anything but a tool to take someone to Christ. If we use it for any other purpose, it's what are we doing, right? He does not want their faith to rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he says back in chapter two. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And he goes on. In chapter 3, again, talking about maturity, he's referring to their maturity. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready for it. Paul is building this case that this church must be mature. They need to grow up. Now we look at the Corinthian church, and they are a divided church they were allowing prohibited things they were appeasing their own flesh and paul says i'm telling you guys you should not be doing that sort of thing any longer in fact in our in the previous chapter previous to our text this morning he said when i was a child i spoke like a child i thought like a child i reasoned like a child when i became a man i gave up childish ways for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now i know in part then i shall know fully even as I have been fully known. And he is challenging them. He is telling the Corinthian church, start to grow up. Enough is enough. It's time to wake up as they grow up and they become the church they know they're called to be. He says, stop pursuing fleshly things. Stop with the fighting. Stop with the division. If indeed they are to be a truly spirit-led church. He says, stop being children in your thinking. And the Greek word there is the word phrasen or phresen, which means understanding or intellect or thoughtful planning. It's a word only used in this instance in all of the New Testament. Paul makes it very clear. Our intellect or our understanding or our thoughtful planning, it must be mature in Christ. Not about satisfying self but satisfying him. And look, I like those little books. Whenever our kids were little, I probably read those things, those, those books with the, the pages that are about that thick, and they're kind of hard to turn the pages sometimes because they stick together. But they've got these cute pictures of, of uh, Jonah standing next to a real big smiling purple whale and Joshua blowing a trumpet while all these happy people walk around a wall and Samson pushing away a Philistine and wiggling a bone, you know, those types of books, those are fun, but they're childish. I, I like the Veggie Tale stuff and the kids' stories, but Jonah was a prophet and not a very good one. Joshua was a warrior who killed his enemies at, a, at the tip of a very short sword. 
And Samson was a womanizer who had his eyes poked out. Church, at some point, even as adults, we have to stop craving the cotton candy sermons that make us feel good and start wanting the steak and potato sermons that nourish our souls. You may want sermons that hype you up. You may want preaching that makes you feel good. But like the sugar rush, soon after you're going to crash. We need meat and vegetables. We need depth. We need scripture. We need doctrine. We need theology. People who chase after the good feelings often are the ones who crash the hardest. And they say, God, what's wrong with me? The problem is you didn't want to nourish your soul. You just wanted a rush. You wanted an emotional experience. Church, it's time to grow up. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Corinthian church needed this as well. And sometimes we all need to be reminded of it. If your mind is renewed, at some point you will become a mature Christian. Paul told them to be infants in evil. Now the Corinthian church, they were experts at evil. The Corinthian church, by the way, the city of Corinth, sometimes I'll even say this, we have not lived in a more immoral age or a more immoral country, but we forget about the city of Corinth. If you did a historical study on the the history of Corinth, that was a city even modern-day San Francisco would go, oh, I guess we're not that bad. They were horrible in their idolatries and their promiscuity and their, their kids' presence, so I won't go any further. But the word for evil that Paul uses here is the Greek word kakia, and it means wickedness, malice, depravity. These are not the things of a spirit-filled life. Peter also uses this word whenever he speaks in 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. It's the Greek word kakia, but live as servants of God. Peter is making a similar point to the church he's writing to, the churches of Asia. Your freedom, the grace that covers you, is not an excuse to sin or do wicked things. Instead, that's what an immature Christian would do. We are to be mature in our faith, no longer covering up our evils, but confessing our wickedness. We are to be held accountable. James tells the church, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, that you might receive salvation. The idea is that we are to be made whole that we're healed spiritually, and that we become mature. I'm borrowing from Romans 8 here, but Paul said this to the Roman churches, the Roman Christians. He said, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those in the, who are in the flesh cannot please God. But at this point, the Corinthian church, they should have matured and had their minds right. Romans 8, 9 Says you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But be mature in your thinking. Now you have to remember, Paul is going to visit the Corinthian Christians. He's likely going to give them a similar message to what he wrote to the Romans. Mature understanding is essential for proper comprehension and use of the gifts, especially if it's tongues or prophecy, because those appeal to us. They appeal to our flesh. When someone stands up or, or says something in church and they, they give this utterance, there is this, uh, there is this desire to, to get a little bit of spotlight on ourselves. 
And so that seems attractive to us. That's not the way of a mature Christian. Paul's instructing them and he's instructing us to put aside the emotion, to put aside the experience with the flesh and with the pride and think very carefully as to the purpose of the gifts. And he goes on in verse 21. He says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now when Paul does this, when he says the law, he's not referring to the Torah here. He's likely referring to the entirety of the Old Testament, what they would have called the Tanakh, or the Hebrew Bible. And Paul's not the only one who does that. Jesus does this in John 10.34. says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. Now, Jesus is quoting Psalm 82, and what he is doing for context in that, in that scenario is he is mocking the Pharisees and the religious leaders who have set themselves up as judges and as little gods, I'm using quotation fingers, as little gods over the people in judgment. And the writer of the Psalms in Psalm 82 was doing the exact same thing to the religious leaders of Israel who had done the same thing the Pharisees were doing. So it's not a good thing. But Jesus is quoting the Psalms and he he talks about the law. So I use that as an example. Just because a New Testament writer refers to the law, it does not necessarily mean he's talking about the Torah. Context is is key. But Paul also does this in Romans 3.19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. He's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament there. And here in 1 Corinthians, what Paul is doing, he's not quoting one of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's paraphrasing, in a sense, Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. Now, what should catch our attention about this, why this matters, is because he's not really quoting Scripture verbatim here like he normally does. He's quoting, in a a sense, he's taking a little bit of the Septuagint and mixing it with the Hebrew version of the scripture. This is very similar if you ever hear me quote scripture without looking at my notes. Sometimes I'll throw in a thee or a thy or a thou. It's because I learned, I memorized scripture as a kid in the King James. And as I got older, I memorized it again in the NIV. And so sometimes I get them jumbled up. Paul is doing the same thing here. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not even necessarily that he's doing it intentionally, but the Holy Spirit is doing this through Paul for a purpose on his part, because it fits, this paraphrase fits perfectly into the narrative which Paul's created here. Isaiah 28 is key to Paul in his view of Christ, as it is for us. He connects, for example, the idea of the cornerstone. Isaiah 28, 16 refers to the cornerstone. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, uh, the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Paul connects this again in Romans 9.33. As it is written, Behold, I am laying laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul understands this cornerstone is to be Jesus Christ. When he says the Lord here, for example, in, in 1 Corinthians, he's likely understanding that it is the Lord Jesus who was giving this message to Isaiah back in Isaiah. Peter, incidentally, he also draws a connection between Jesus and the cornerstone. 
in 1 Peter 2.7, but he connects it to Psalm 118.22. But we're going to look for just a second at Isaiah 28, and we're going to connect some of the dots. We're going to follow the breadcrumbs that Paul is, is laying out for us here. In verses 1 through 3, Isaiah refers to the priests, the prophets, and the leaders of Israel as drunkards. Their drunken speech is incomprehensible. Church, I've said this very subtly in the past. I want to make it very clear. Drunkenness, whether it be in, in a spirit or whether it be from alcohol, it is always a bad thing in Scripture. Okay? In verses 7 through 10, they, these drunkards mock Isaiah's prophecy as that of an infant's words. They think they know better. In verse 11, God will permit incomprehensible speech heard by them, whether the speech comes from the drunk leaders or a foreign nation's tongue, because they don't listen. In Isaiah, Isaiah is referencing being captured by a foreign enemy, by the Assyrians. And we can't miss this. God himself is speaking in verse 5, and he calls them, he calls the nation of Israel, my people. But by the time he gets to verse 11, he calls them this people. What he means there is God is temporarily disowning the people of Israel by bringing judgment upon them for refusing to listen to God's words. Why is this? What's so magnificent about that? What's what's so great? How does that relate to the Corinthian church though, right? Uh, Pastor Jeff, what are you doing here? Well, what Paul is doing is he's taking this theme of judgment and he's reconfiguring it in a sense to speak to the incomprehensible tongues which without interpretation, as some gibberish nobody can understand. And to Paul, this people would not have been just the unbelieving population of Israel, but all unbelievers. Israel should have been able to take the foreign languages that were happening in Acts chapter 2, and just like Peter, connect the dots and say, oh, this is, this is from Joel chapter 2, and understand them. But because they didn't, it's another sign they're rejecting Christ because they are rejecting the Holy Spirit. And Peter pronounces judgment on them, and Paul's speaking about judgment once again. And likely that is what happens as it culminates in 70 AD, as the temple's destroyed, the Jewish people are invaded once again by Rome, and and the city is burned. They experienced that similarly in 586, when Babylon did the same thing. But this is why all the more Paul tells the church to operate in the gifts correctly, Because if tongues are not understood, if they're not interpreted, the judgment will not just fall on the people who rejected Christ, but on the one who had the prophetic utterance and did not do it or did not do it correctly. And again, I'm I'm going to remind us of Ezekiel chapter 3. He says to, to the prophet, he says, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die in for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Church, if the gifts do not empower us to warn others, to evangelize, to witness, to call people to repent, then we are not operating in a mature way with the gifts that we're given. If we fail to operate in the gifts as they are given, we are going to destroy our opportunity to bring an unbeliever to Christ. And that leads me to the second point. We are to be missional in the Spirit. He says in verse 22, 
Thus, tongues are a sign for, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, in chapter 12, verse 10, again, I, I want to point out, Paul confirms there are various types of tongues. So we need to use that in context and also use a little bit of common sense here to try and understand what Paul is truly saying. Some might say that tongues are a visible token of judgment and a sign of uh, symbolizing the, the inaccessibility of God's divine revelation. Others might say Paul is forbidding tongues unless there are unbelievers present. But like we saw last week, tongues with interpretation are not just tongues, but also a form of prophecy. So what we see taking place here in tongues, when a message is given on one side of the sanctuary and an interpretation on the other side is given, we are witnessing an actual miracle take place. Someone who doesn't understand the language is speaking it, and someone else who doesn't understand the language is interpreting it and giving an explanation. In fact, the word for sign here, and we understand that, is God speaking to his people. In fact, the word for sign here, Paul uses is the word semeon. And it's actually, it can be translated miracle, or at least a remarkable event or extraordinary occurrence. And it's meant, if you, if you understand this in the Greek, it's actually meant as a negative sign, what the unbeliever may experience as a bad thing. Because for the unbeliever, it's something of conviction. It's a miraculous event that hits a nerve within their heart, within their core, and drives them or draws them to Christ. And they may not see that initially as a good thing. Conviction's not easy, right? An unbelieving or unrepentant heart is not going to want something like that, at least not at first. For the church, as we saw last week, it's a, it's a thing of edification. It's a, it's a prophetic utterance keeping the church in obedience to the Lord. Tongues are not a sign for believers. We already believe. What would be the point? We, we should not need more convincing, Right? There we go. Amen. There we go. All right. The unbeliever does need convincing. So that's why the miracle takes place. What the believer needs is edification and strength, encouragement, even a rebuke if they're going far off track. And I want to reiterate, I'm not, again, I'm not referring to your personal prayer language, that type of tongues. Paul covered that back when he said in verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue Uh, builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. But remember, he follows that with verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. If we are all believers, though tongues may not even be needed, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom may be uttered. Someone may receive a word from the Lord, either to encourage or rebuke, But it is for the church, it is meant to be a completely prophetic gift in its nature. Paul goes on and he expands on this in verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Again, tongues need an interpretation for them to make sense. We saw Paul drive this home last week and he repeats the point here to make sure they understand. If there are going to be tongues, there must be interpretation. Now, when I say tongues, we all know I'm not talking about your personal prayer language. I'm talking about the, the vocalization, the assembly. If someone walks in and everyone's just speaking in tongues and it's just noise, they're more likely to walk right back out thinking we're a cult, not a church. 
Paul makes it clear with the rhetorical question, won't they, won't they all say you're, cra- won't they say you're all crazy? The, re- the answer is, yeah, right? Because we're all just making noise. Now in Corinth, that's, it's slightly different than today because in Corinth, they would have walked into a church and saw this and thought, oh, it's another cult of Dionysus. Dionysus was a god of drunkenness. And so that would have been a common practice for people to be acting drunk, worshiping Dionysus. It also could have been a cult of Sibylle and their followers. One historian said they were a dangerous menace because they were little more than drunken beasts. Someone who observes those things may reject Christ entirely, much less think you're crazy, right? That's why in Acts chapter 2, the fact that Peter stands up and he gives an explanation, it's why it's so important. When the day of Pentecost came, everybody was speaking in tongues, right? What exactly happens? We read again. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this freaks people out, right? Rightly so. Verse 6, it says, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. The Jeff Williams translation is freaked out. Okay, everybody. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And then verses 12 through 13, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, said they are filled with new wine. So then there comes an explanation, if you will, an interpretation from Peter. Now we don't see something happening where we might say there was a supernatural interpretation. But what we do see is Peter standing up as an elder, as a pastor, and he explains what has just occurred, and he exposits Scripture as he does so. He could be interpreting, but more than anything, he's preaching. And since he's preaching expositorily, he's also preaching prophetically, because expository preaching is itself prophetic, as it is from the Holy Spirit. And he explains what happens. And he explains it to the onlookers and the outsiders, the unbelievers, right? He uses this opportunity to give them the gospel. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Gone down to verse 32 and 33. Then... This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And ultimately, and by the time we get to verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Hear me on this today, church. Some of you have asked, what is the point of this series? Why are we going through this? It's, it's intense, there's so much text, there's so much going on. I want to be very crystal clear on this. In October, we have an evangelist coming. And I hope, and it is my prayer, and again, I would ask you to fast and pray with me on this, that we see the Holy Spirit move, not just in our church, but in our community. That we are empowered, we are energized to be going and bringing people to this event and, and, and having a true move of the Holy Spirit as we see him flow in our church. And my prayer is we see people filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit, and we see more than anything unbelievers saved. 
What I am praying for this fall is that we see a revival sweep through this town in such a way we've never seen before, that the Holy Spirit will draw people in for these services, and that we'll see people want to come to this church who never would have darkened the door of any church, unbelievers. When they see miracles that is tongues, when they hear miracles that is prophecy, my prayer is that they will have questions and they'll overwhelm the pastor and I can pass them off onto some of you. Right? Amen. Because then you've been instructed, you've been equipped. Like Ephesians 4, Paul tells the pastors to equip the saints. You'll be equipped and you'll be able to say, hey, hey, I got an answer for you. They won't have to wait on the pastor to be free at the altar and come and ask me, what was all that about? They can lean over and say, Dale, what happened? Ron, what what was going on? What what did I just witness? What did I just see? And you'll be able to remember this series and say, that was a miracle. That was the Holy Spirit moving through our church. And he does so in an orderly way. Let me show you 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, as we are a church that believes in operating in the gifts of the Spirit. And hopefully their heart will be pierced and they they will realize that it is time to give their lives to Christ. And you, you, not me, you will be an an integral part of that process. We are to be missional in the Spirit. Guys, that goes beyond sending missionaries. So we, we do it. We love our missionaries. Don't get me wrong. But it means being missional even in our own backyard or across the aisle in church service sometimes. And being able to give a biblical answer to a Pentecostal question is the first step in making a disciple who also will be equipped and operating in the gifts of the Spirit correctly. That's how a real revival begins. If we are to grow, we need to make disciples. Not just brush something off as, well, that's the Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Ghost, and not bothering to explain what the Holy Spirit just did. The Holy Spirit's move can be very troubling. In fact, it can be frightening. And church, I would, I would believe that any move of God should be. God is a terrifying being. As Jonathan Edwards said, is it a frightful thing to be a sinner in the hands of an angry God? But God is also loving and drawing people to himself, and he does that through the power of his Holy Spirit. And we hope that we can just be a part of that process. We say, God, bring a revival, but use anybody but me. No! If you're spirit-led, you are, you are the hammer. You are the screwdriver he's using to build his kingdom. When God's presence is revealed this way, we might be caught off guard, but that doesn't mean we're not ready to roll. It doesn't mean we're not ready to go with it. My prayer is just like in Zechariah 8.23. The, the Lord of hosts says, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall, shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. If people came to our church and ten people grabbed you and said, Can you disciple me? I want to know this Jesus. Do you feel like you'd be ready to go? Do you feel like you'd be ready to roll with that and say, Yeah, yeah, I feel equipped. I hope so. I hope that at least on the topic of the Holy Spirit, you can say, Hey, I've got good teaching on that recently. I know about that. If someone were to say to you like Nebuchadnezzar said to Daniel, The king answered to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Could you reveal the mystery using Scripture? My prayer is that after this series, yes, you can. Not say, well, I don't know, watch this YouTube video. No, don't do that. Take the Scripture and and break it down for them as I have for you. 
that you can say with confidence, I've had an experience with the Holy Spirit. I've had an experience with Jesus. Let me tell you about it. Because in the Spirit, we are missional, even in our own town, or we are failing to operate in the Spirit. And it will destroy our relationship with unbelievers. That's why I say there is a difference between the charismatic and the Pentecostal. The charismatic wants the gifts, and they just want the gifts for personal experience. The Pentecostal says, no, I'm about a harvest, and I want to be used by God for the harvest. That's where I draw the line. And if we're operating in the Spirit correctly, we will see miracles in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14, 24, Paul goes on, he says, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. While tongues may not hold much of an appeal for the believer, both tongues and prophecy still have an impact on the heart of an unbeliever. He or she is convicted. The Greek word Paul uses here is elekchatai, and it means he's exposed, or more literally, he is rebuked and shown his own faults. Again, this, this holds to the whole purpose of the role of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 7-11, through 11, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. But this does not happen... I want to be very clear. We do not operate in these gifts because, oh, there's a new, new guy here and we should really make sure we operate in the gifts so he gets saved. That's not, that's not what Paul's saying here. Nothing like that. Instead, what Paul is saying initially here is as the church operates in the manner they're supposed to operate, led by the Spirit, using the gifts appropriately, correctly, the outsider who comes in overhears these things or witnesses these things as they take place regularly, and they are convicted as the secrets of their heart are revealed, at least if to no one else, to himself. And the word he is called to account, it's actually only one word in, word, one word in Greek, it's anachroninatai. Good luck trying to repeat that. <laughs> it means he is judged, or he's called to examine himself closely. When we are operating in the Spirit rightly, we will see people feel convicted or even judged. That's not to be your doing. That's not to be my doing. We don't force that sort of thing, and not until they're a brother in Christ, right? If you read Matthew 7, you understand that. If we're preaching the Word, if we're teaching the Word, if we're singing the Word, if we're operating in the Spirit, speaking by the Spirit, worshiping in Spirit, guess what? People will feel judged. People will feel convicted. It's not meant to scare them away or stir them and make them not want to be a part of the church or run them off. It's meant to drive them to a place of repentance. Again, what did Peter tell the questioning unbelievers at the day of Pentecost? He said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We try, and I think our hospitality team does a great job of this, but by making Faith Assembly of God feel like a welcoming church. That those who come in feeling like guests say to themselves as they leave, you know, I, I could be a part of the church like that. I think they do a, a phenomenal job with that. And that's our hope. That's our drive behind the, the hospitality team. 
We want people to feel like they're home when they visit here. But singing and preaching and even taking up the offering as an act of worship can turn some people off. We've seen that as well over the past few years. Why? Because it's spirit-led, and some have hardened their hearts to the spirit so much they want nothing to do with the spirit. Others will feel convicted because they no longer know how to feel convicted, so they immediately feel condemned. We live in a culture where the minute somebody says something we don't agree with, we say, I'm oppressed, I'm a victim. We may see that happen even in our church when we're doing everything right. And when we do things wrong, we need to be willing to own that and, and confess it and repent of it and show grace towards one another as we move, move forwards. In Matthew 18, 15-20, Jesus gives us instructions how to operate if someone sins against us or someone does offend us. And the point of the whole thing is to always be bringing restoration to the church, to bring healing to that relationship. And if the person doesn't listen, he says escalate it higher. But the general idea is to restore your brother, restore one another. If someone feels convicted by the Holy Spirit and they leave and they don't want anything to do with us anymore, we can't restore that relationship. They're not giving us a chance to do that. Only God can get a hold of that person. But we need to be careful to make sure we're operating in the gifts correctly, that it's the Holy Spirit's doing, not my spirit or your spirit or, or spirit of flesh. When it's the Holy Spirit, the human heart that is tender towards Him, when it's a heart of good soil, like we saw in Mark 4, 8, then we see a miracle. We see in verse 25, 1 Corinthians 14, 25, the secrets of His heart are disclosed, and so, do, and so falling on His face, He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Church, this is the greatest miracle we will ever see in this church sanctuary. And we have seen it, where a life so hard-hearted, so angry or bitter at God begins to melt, and the Word takes root, and the, the Christian begins to become a thing, right, in the life of that believer. When an unbeliever comes to Christ and experiences the power of the Holy Spirit that drives him or her to repentance, we get excited. This is the thing. We get so excited when we, we see the miraculous healings, when we hear financial miracle testimonies. But you know what? Jesus said this, just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Maybe we need a shift in the miracles we really celebrate. First, the idea is to let the word, let Christ shape our priorities. And when we get excited about a physical healing, praise God, that's awesome. But when someone gets saved, when someone repents, when someone submits their life to the holy God, we shout all the louder. The idea of falling on your face, by the way, that's a, a direct reaction to the presence of God. We see it in the Old Testament often. Abraham fell on his face in Genesis 17.3. The whole nation fell on their faces in, in Numbers 16.22. First Kings 18.39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord is God. He is the Lord, he is God. In Joshua 5.14, when he's standing before the pre-incarnate Christ, I believe uh, the Christophonic verse there, he said, I am the commander of the, the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? We also see John do this in Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, he's talking about Christ. I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Church, I, don't, I want to be very careful here, very clear. 
I don't condemn what we call being slain in the spirit at a, at a Pentecostal altar where somebody falls back. I don't condemn that. I don't think it's necessarily unbiblical or wrong. But I will tell you that I look forward to the day, not where people are falling back, but coming to this altar and falling on their face and saying, I'm a sinner in need of repentance. I'm a sinner in need of grace. I'm a sinner. I need to be made right before a holy God. Show me the cross. Show me Christ. Teach me about that. That's what grows a church. If we are operating in the Spirit correctly, we will see miracles like that take place. And we'll see them every week. I believe that. If we do it wrong, then what we do is we drive a wedge between the church and the unbeliever. So let's do it right. I'm going to move to close in just a second. I want to end with this. Falling on your face is not just something for the unbeliever. It's also for those of us who believe too. John was a believer. Abraham believed. Joshua believed. When you're in the presence of God, you, you will do as they did and fall flat on your face in his holy presence. You know, we pray for revival. We pray for God's mercy, God's gifts, and God's leading. But we, are we willing to be used by him to get there? Are we willing to tarry at the altar as the old expression goes? Or do we want something much more like beating the Baptist to Pizza Ranch? You know, and if you've got to leave, if you, if you have something somewhere to go, I don't want you to feel condemned for that statement. I'm just saying that how much time are we willing to be on our face before God Almighty and say, Lord, use me. Use this church. Bring a revival. I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I do. But I would ask you, I know we have a meal downstairs waiting, and I know there's things going on, time for food and fellowship and, and BGMC funds and things, but I would challenge you today, spend some time in his presence. Pray and seek correction and direction and, and for a move to action that we see a revival in this area of the world that we know needs it so badly. Father God, I just come before you right now. And Lord, you know we have made plans, we have things that we are wanting, but Lord, we submit to you. As the Lord wills, we'll have a revival. But Lord, we, we desperately want it. We want to see hearts change. We want to see lives change. We want to see the Holy Spirit move and operate within Faith Assembly of God and not just stop here, but in Lisbon and Inderlin and Gwinter and, and all of Ransom County, Father God that there be a wave of repentance, that there be a wave of your Holy Spirit drawing people to Christ. Lord, we're willing. We're saying, here we are. Send us. Use us, Father God. I pray that you do. I pray that this church not just become a, a building or a, a, a closet for storing the, the charismatic gifts, but Lord, that it be a launch pad for a move of the Holy Spirit for your word to be spread throughout wherever we live, wherever we interact with others, Lord, that you give us an opportunity to be a missionary to the person across the table from us, that you give us a chance to preach or teach or, or expound and exposit scripture for those who are willing to hear it, Father God, even to our own families who desperately need it and don't even know that they want it, Father God. Lord, I pray that people in our lives get sick of hearing about Jesus because we because they feel convicted by the message that we teach, that we preach, and we share with them at every supper table. Father, I pray that we look for the opportunities, that you give us the, the tactics, the ability to share our faith, Father God, to plant seeds, to put a rock in a shoe, whatever the case may be, Father God, that, that it just irritate them enough to drive them to Jesus. 
Father, we worship you today. We pray you're glorified in our, our fellowship time downstairs, that you, you bless the meal, you bless our bodies with the meal, Father, but most importantly, that you are blessed by our actions, our words, and our thoughts. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.